John chapter 11, starting again in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but... Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. At the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. When she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house And comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went, they followed her, saying, Well, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. My favorite is the King James, because it says, By now he stinketh. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we are dedicating this time to you on this New Year's Eve, the last day of 2017. And you know what you want to teach us today, how you want us to learn and hear from you. And I pray today that we would have ears to hear. Lord, I pray you would overcome every language barrier, culture barrier, and any other barrier that we could possibly throw up against you. Overcome them all. Scale them, Lord. Destroy them. And in their place, reveal yourself. May we be drawn in and captivated. May we be surprised at how new and fresh and personal this text is. And whether we've heard it for the first time or we can't count how many times, Lord, may we have so much fun in your text, but Lord, may we be so in it that we get it. And not just for information, Lord, but as we say, for transformation. So Lord, now have your way. Commit this time, Lord, every moment. Holy Spirit, come upon me and speak now through me. Fluent every one of us here. 
Let every ear that hear, hear it spoken in a way they get. So speak, Lord, into each of our lives, we pray, and redeem every second in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. And you can bet if I say that about me, I would say that about anything. Test all things you hear by the scriptures. We left off. Jesus learned that his good friend Lazarus is deathly ill. The only person whose name is ever used in a parable, interestingly, in the Gospel of Luke, where a poor man dies and is comforted at the bosom of Abraham, and a rich man for which the poor man named Lazarus would beg at his table. And when the rich man died, though he fared sumptuously is the way that Luke records it, that he would be carried to hell and there in torment would see Lazarus and ask him to raise from the dead and warn his brothers. And the response was, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe that, they won't believe if a guy would raise from the dead. And yet, of all the people whose names are given, it is someone who clearly now raises from the dead. Jesus notes when he is told about his friend who is deathly ill, he notes the end game. Please hear me in that. It's not death, but disclosure. It wouldn't be simply for the grave, but rather for the glory. It's the glory of God that will be revealed and the glory of that Son, Jesus. Interesting, though, though it will not end in death, it will be en route. And no one sees here at the moment that death isn't the destination, but it is the route to the resurrection. Because at this point, let's be honest, when someone dies, we just don't assume they're coming back. Jesus, loving Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, by the way, waits until Lazarus is dead. And then he heads south, 87 miles south to Bethany. His disciples, remembering that the last time that Jesus was there, it was nearly fatal. They had picked up stones to stone Jesus. Well, they find themselves quite uncomfortable with Jesus returning down to Judea, and for good reason. The last time Jesus was there, they wanted to kill him. And imagine what it would be like, Thomas says, well, let's just go and die with him. So we left in a case where Jesus is responding to a call, an urgent call, like every one of us. If you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, it is likely that you've cried to God urgently for something. I mean, there are those moments where we ask God for things because we kind of want them. There are those moments when we ask God a little more fervently because we think we need them. But there are moments where the prayer is entirely different, where getting on our knees is not some form of protocol. We can't help it because we are so hit heavy with grief. And in a moment like that, our prayers take on an entirely different tone. They're not cavalier or flippant or nonchalant. At that moment, we lose all the spiritual ADD we normally have when we pray. If you're anything like me, well, we pray for a moment and that's like, squirrel! And we're like looking, oh yeah, Lord, please. And oh, hey, what about this? And it's amazing. At those moments, everything goes to a single task where you are crying out in desperation. That's the request that Jesus gets from these women. They seem to very much love their brother. And what's clear is everyone seems to know that Jesus loves all three of them. And yet we read, though Jesus is aware of the gravity of this situation. We read, because he loves them, he waits. Now we're aware of the fact that there are different Greek words for love. The most common word used among the Greeks is the word phileho. We get the word Philadelphia from it. Delphi means brother. So Philadelphia, in the simplest sense, means brotherly love. Love. 
Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. Brotherly love. It's the word that is used when we talk about things like a philanthropist. Anthropos, like anthropology, means man. So philanthropos means somebody in essence who's a lover of men. Not men as in male figures, but of humankind. Someone who does kind things. The word agape, the word that is used in selflessness, is a word seldom used, to be honest, because most people don't really get it. To be honest, you will never really truly selflessly love someone more than likely that you really like. Because if you like them, let's face it, you're always going to get something in return. But to be absolutely selfless means you don't do it with any intent of return. You do it, in essence, often at great sacrifice to yourself. And the reason I say that is, it is the word that is used when we read, because Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Jesus could have had that mutuality, the word phileo. I mean, when we think of love like, I love you, which is usually bait so that the other person responds with, I love you too. Because it's weird when you don't, unless you have kids like mine, where I say, I love you, and they say, thanks, or okay, or whatever. So I guess I get more agape out of it. But for the most part, when we think of love, it's somewhere between eros, a very selfish love, and a mutual type of love. Because let's face it, if you stop giving whatever it is that I think is love, chances are I'm going to run dry too. And that is not selfless love. And the reason I say that when we read because Jesus loved them, he was doing the most selfless thing by waiting. Now that's a rough thing to hear. In other words, Jesus could be selfish to run to the aid of these women that he loves and this brother, this friend that he loves, Lazarus. But he has to be more selfless because the end game is more important to actually attain than it is to just ease the pain of the moment. But it's great to note he doesn't do that without first knowing the end game. He says this does not end in death. He starts there. Then he waits. The problem is that the disciples Jesus has are like us. They are doofuses. Doofi? I don't know what the plural doofus is. In other words, I can't imagine any of us are getting it. We see death. We think it's done. And Jesus is going to wait because the end result is that we would actually see Jesus for who he really is a little bit better and see the Father for who he really is. But let's face it. At this point, by the time Jesus shows up there, Lazarus has been flatlining for days. So verse 17 says, When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. He found out, which means that Jesus didn't even know that yet. And he'd say, well, doesn't God know everything? Well, Jesus removed the right to know everything the moment he came and clothed himself in flesh. Because otherwise, how could we say to him, God, you won't understand, you, you know everything. Jesus is like, no, actually, I had to choose to learn things like you. Because we read, by the way, after Jesus' birth and his circumcision and his dedication, that he grew, including in wisdom. So Jesus has now arrived, at least in the town where Lazarus is dead. Verse 18, and it says Bethany is near Jerusalem, about two miles away. That's a Sabbath day's walk. It's two miles away from peril. Two miles away means that two miles away from there was where everyone was trying to kill him. But we read in verse 19, notice, and. Which tells us it's building on the fact that two miles away was Jerusalem. It says, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now I'm going to say some challenging things here. And I challenge you like always, again, please don't just believe me, but consider carefully what's being said. John will distinctly use the term the Jews. Now it's not because John is anti-Semitic. To be honest, we know that John himself is Jewish, the writer of this gospel. And it goes even beyond that. We know that John is actually well known to the high priest. I know that. 
<clears throat> because in the gospel accounts, it tells us in John's gospel that John was known to the high priest, and because of that, he was allowed to get Peter into the courtyard where he would deny Jesus three different times. He is well aware of the system to some degree. And when he starts to speak of the Jews, he speaks about a religious system that had gone so far from what God had intended. It had gotten to the point where instead of responding to the love and the grace of God, and by the way, you are aware, right, that biblical Christianity is the only religion based on grace, the devil demands justice. It's God who offers grace. A gift. He offers you life as a gift, not as an earning. And there's the problem. So instead, if it's not about grace, it's about works. It's about your efforts. Now, if you think about it, when someone would call you self-righteous, if you make yourself right with God through your own work, you are self-righteous. Dare I say, Christians are the only people on the planet who can't be self-righteous. Because we have to be Christ-righteous. Only Jesus makes us right with God. There's no way we can boast. Imagine we were all drowning and Jesus in those cool red Baywatch shorts jumps in the water, pulls us out, resuscitates us, and we look at each other and go, I was drowning less than you were. And in the end of it all, we were all drowning. And as a result of this issue of moving from a gift that God has, where God is the initiator and we are the responder, it had moved to a place where you did the work and maybe it was enough, which puts it in the same category as every other religion. The term in the Hebrew is mitzvot. It actually means commandment. As a matter of fact, bar, the Aramaic for son, when you are at 13 presented as a boy, because you are now a son of the commandments, they give you a bar mitzvah. Mitzvah means commandment, but it is in essence synonymous with the idea of doing good works. One of those good works revolved around death, helping those who were grieving by helping them, oddly enough, grieve. There is a sense of honor that when a person dies within a Jewish culture, that people will come and cry with you. They are actually professional criers. Not criers like town crier who stands up and yells something, like professional weepers. Might I say, I do know some people who they would do really well at that job. Matter of fact, I think that could be easily a first job for a lot of teenagers that I know. Boys and girls alike. But understand when people did this, they did this because they believed they owed God. And because they believed they owed God, this was an opportunity to do something, in essence, to get favor with God. They were buying God's favor, kind of like a weird Jewish karma, is the idea. And why, we, why I'm saying all that, because what we read is, is that Bethany was only a Sabbath day's walk away from Jerusalem, and there is nobody is more religious among the Jewish culture than those in Jerusalem. To this day, by the way, the ultra-Orthodox love to flock to that area because, of course, there's the, the biblical principles behind it uh, and standards <clears throat> and promises. But understand, there is a plethora, there is a big batch of people who are dying to do something that's a good work. And a death is like, oh, awesome, because if you actually were good at crying, you could actually get paid time off. Imagine if you could find a person that died once a week, 52 times. Well, not the same person, but it's like 52 different people. Each one died one week from the last one. You could actually be paid all year round and never actually have to show up at your job. And the reason I say that is, as they have now flocked to Mary, Martha, and, well, Lazarus, as he's died, 
uh, so that they can go and cry with Mary and Martha. But I want to warn you, in this, we're going to see that Jesus encounters both Martha and Mary. And this is one of, the, one of those places where Martha really shines. To be honest, outside of the text of sort of Martha complaining about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet when she's making food in Luke, pretty much these two chapters, 11 and 12, are the only other places where you actually get to know them. And here, by the way, what we're going to find is, is that Martha, her response, even though their text, the beginning of it sounds exactly the same, they're very, very different. And I kind of get the idea that somewhere in that, Mary and Martha were talking because they say exactly the same thing to start. So Jesus has shown up. And when he shows up, it is a loud scene. Now, I'll be honest. There are some funerals I've seen that have been Epic. First of all, I think it's a great place to preach the gospel and let people know that our God is the God of life and this is a great text for it. But consider the fact that, I mean, there are some, it's like a big party. Have you seen this? It's like, it's not like a grieving parade. It's like everyone celebrates their life. And I mean, let's face it, they do grieve because they lose that relationship they have immediately, but they have this hope because they know that it's only temporary. And by the way, if you think that grieving over a person that's passed away is a sin, might I dare say to you, Jesus cries in this chapter. And I think that that's noteworthy. But it says in verse 19, and many of the Jews. In other words, this was no small weeping party. This was a giant crying party. Who wants to step into that? I live in a household of girls. I can tell you that there have been days when there's been a little bit of a mood in the house. And I tell you, I understand why guys go bowling and shoot things. But and I'm not encouraging, but yeah, it's like in many of the many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, let's look at her first. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. She jumped up and she ran after him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now, there's a comparison right here, right from the get-go. It tells us now, if you recognize, the word but's a very important word here. In other words, it appears as if the information landed on both sets of ears, Martha's and Mary's. In Martha's case, she jumped up and she ran to Jesus. But we read that Mary was sitting. Katetsumai. Katetsumai, by the way, simply means to sit down. For what it's worth, forgive the grammar, it's imperfect. Which means it just kept happening, it was already happening and it kept happening. It's the middle deponent, which means it's an active choice. And it's indicative. In other words, it's a fact. You get the idea that somehow Mary heard this information and she chose to keep sitting, is what we get out of this, in the house. Now that seems a little weird. But you don't actually have to be a grammarian to actually recognize the word but there is for a reason. So imagine, if you will, and I'm just going to play this because I happen to have two very lovely ladies right there. So Suzanne and Julie are there. And they're kind of Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary. And out of that, you guys can decide which one's which. But basically, you are surrounded by a group of people who are crying. Now, they're crying. Now, please understand, they're not crying. Now, how weird would this be for you? They're not crying because they miss Lazarus. They're not crying because they're hurting. They're crying because they feel like this is what's going to get God in their pocket. How did you feel about that? Do you want people like that? Do you want people that are, let's face it though, there are times where what we really want is comfort. And I'm going to dare say it, finding just anything to comfort us is a very bad idea. And it's a dangerous idea when the God of all comfort has come to bring you comfort because they can get in the way of it. I know there are people who are addicted to all kinds of things because... They have found a moment of grief and they've learned to lean on the bottle, on a drug, on the next relationship, on violence. My thing was violence, by the way. When things got rough and crazy, I just went out and tried to get the rough and crazy out of me by getting rough and crazy on someone else. It was a very bad idea. In fairness, I didn't know there was a God of all comfort, but now that I do, I have no excuse. Praise God. I don't do that anymore. So get this. News falls on both of them. Martha, and I'm just going to pull Suzanne up. Sorry, Julie. You know, I've got to play favorites here. She's my wife. You know, she jumps up and off she goes. But Mary's kind of like, no, I'm staying here. Now, what if we looked inside, kind of like that Inside Out movie? 
I mean, not that I want to really build on Pixar or Disney, all of that, but if any of you have ever seen that where there's all those emotions that are kind of talking and all of that inside the head, and they have like these bowling balls that glow. And anyway, uh, if you've never seen it, never mind. But the point is, is that imagine if we could crawl into their heads and hearts and hear them for the moment, what it would be like. Somewhere in all of this, there are two people desperate for comfort because they've lost someone they love. That's fair, don't you think? I mean, that grief is genuine. That pain is real. And they hear that Jesus is there and one gets up. Why doesn't the other one get up and go? Do you wonder? Well, think about what they're going to say. They're both going to start with the same statement, which is, if you had been here, this would not have happened. Martha is going to throw a step beyond that and act in faith, but Mary's not going to go beyond that. That's where she stays. And dare I say, maybe that's why. Please, please hear me. When you are in pain, it is so easy to listen to the enemy, who, by the way, at that moment, loves and sees his prime opportunity to accuse. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the slanderer. It's what his name means. Diabolos, devil, means slanderer. And when you're looking for comfort, and I'm going to say it bluntly because it needs to be said, blame does not bring comfort. And if you've been taught it does, I can tell you where it came from. And if we think for just a moment we can take this anger and this grief and shove it on someone else, it goes away. We all know by now we're adults. It doesn't go away like that. But can you get the idea? When you get to that point, I could almost hear the conversation. Mary's like, I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm gone. Martha. Martha's like, she doesn't even have, this isn't a second thought. Off she goes. And Mary's like, no, I don't want to see him right now. I don't actually, I don't know if he wants to see me. I look at him, I'm a mess anyways, but man, I don't want to. Man, because if, if he had just been here, we wouldn't even be in this position. I gave him a deadline, a literal deadline. He need, We sent for him days ago. Why hasn't he come? And now he's going to show up? Isn't that accusing? Isn't that where we go with this? You know, if you'd shown up earlier, man, I wouldn't be suffering like this. And you know what? In a moment like that, the last place you want to be is anywhere where Jesus is, where you see him. Because let's face it, when you're angry, the last place you want to go is a place where you actually get rid of it. In other words, you know who you're listening to. If the enemy wants to keep you out of fellowship, this is a very effective tool. So Martha gets up and she starts running. But Mary, she stays sitting. I'm, I'm, you go, I'm sitting. Boy, that's not going to help. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But, and here's our second but statement, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Is Martha actually believing that death could be temporary of Jesus? This isn't the first person he's raised from the dead, by the way. There was a widow's son in Naim. There was a little girl, by the way, in Capernaum. This is not the first person he's raised from the dead. It's just the first person, perhaps, that stinketh. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Stop. Get this. As far as Martha is concerned, everything hangs on this resurrection. There is a promise of a resurrection for the just and the unjust. And when, they, when there is this resurrection, the dead will be raised immortal. The wicked will be judged and the righteous will be vindicated. They call it the Olam Chavach, if you will, and it literally means to be in heaven. And she goes, you know, I know there's going to be this day where the righteous are made right. Where the wicked are judged by this day and in this day. And all my hope could be restored. Jesus goes, all those things are me. That's his statement here. That whole idea 
that there'll be a day when people could be made right with God. Jesus is like, I'm the way that happens. There'll be this thing by which all the wicked are judged. Jesus says, I'm that thing by which the wicked are judged. Now look it. Without Jesus, you're back to a system of works. Let me ask you. Because some of you were raised in that. I can tell just by the fact that where you've come from. There's certain places in the world where it's like so strongly built on this idea that you just keep doing stuff and hope it's enough and God is trying to pay your bill and you're trying to work it off. Imagine how insulting that must be to God. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, everything you're looking for is found in me, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what I need you to do. I need you to trust me. That's the word believe. He who believes in me, though he may die, he'll live. You go, how in the world does that work? Why do we hate it when someone that we love dies? Is it because they cease being animated? Is it because they start to rot? Or is it because we lose the relationship that we had with them before that? When God told Adam and Eve, well, Adam, Adam, we have to tell you, on the day that you eat of the fruit, mut tamut in the Hebrew, Try that, because it's just kind of fun to say, mut tamut. Try that. See, that keeps you from falling asleep too. So mut tamut, by the way, is what's called a double infinitive. There, you can't get more sure than that. Jesus will use that. He gets into the Greek with this. When he says, most assuredly I say to you, which is literally, amen, amen. Well, understand, mut tamut literally means you'll die to die. Now, understand, God said to Adam, on the day that you eat of this, And then we read about the day that he eats of it. And then he seems to live on for another 900 years. You go, well, what am I missing? Well, apparently God's definition of death and our definition of death must be different. You see, on the day that Adam ate of that, he lost that relationship with God. And that's what we hate when someone dies, physically in front of us or otherwise, because we lose that relationship. As far as God was concerned, though he was still animated, they didn't have the relationship anymore. Please understand this. What God wants from you is a relationship, and that's why death is such a huge issue. And Jesus says, you may physically cash in that body that you're wearing, but you will never lose relationship with me, which is where real life is. And he asks her, do you believe this? Whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. And her response to that then, and by the way, for what it's worth, (coughs) on your own time, take a look at Revelation, Revelation, (laughs) actually kind of, Revelation chapter 20, where it talks about this resurrection, and you see that what the separating token between the two will be Jesus. And it says, after Martha confesses, you know what? Okay, Jesus, if that's the case, well then, hold on, let me go get my sister because she's still kind of angry at you. So verse 28, when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary her sister. The teacher has come. He's calling for you, Mary. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews who were with her, notice they're still with her, in the house, And comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, well, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell down at his feet. She always seems to wind up there and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yeah, that's where that ends. Do you see the difference? I get the idea that Martha and Mary were talking, and it's like, man, if Jesus had just, where is he? And imagine all, every second is like a moment of grief, and it's just ripping you apart. And then finally, it's like Lazarus dies, and you're like, are you kidding me? There's no possible way I would assume Jesus wouldn't have shown up by now. And if he had been here, he wouldn't, Lazarus wouldn't die. I agree, Martha. If you hadn't been there, if he'd have shown up. He had shown up on time. And the funny part is, is that while they're freaking out over this, Jesus is waiting because the Father said, wait, we've got a bigger plan here. So Mary shows up, and you can imagine she is not happy. She falls at his feet in grief, and a broken heart is talking, and it's speaking jagged words at Jesus. If you had shown up when you were supposed to, my brother would not have died. And you realize... 
Mary's accusative tone is very different from Martha's. Though it started that way, Martha knew what happened. The difference, by the way, what we're going to see is Martha left her comforters to go seek Jesus, but Mary's got him coming with her. We're going to find out now they're there. And please understand, when the focus is on your grief and not on God, you're in trouble, man. And we're going to find that happens a lot. After Jesus had died himself, and of course this all thing is foreshadowing to that. In Luke chapter 24, I believe it's in verse 21, two guys had been there and they're walking away. They're fleeing Jerusalem because they're afraid they're kind of next. And Jesus sort of shows up on the, the path with them. They're on their way to a mouse. And he kind of like, hey guys, what's going on? And they're like, what, were you like in a cave or something? You know, we, we, there was this prophet and he was mighty in words and deeds. And it says in verse 21, well, we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. In other words, we were hoping. We had this hope and we don't anymore. Well, Mary drew a line in the sand and said, death, well, that's where it ends. There's no possible way it can get beyond this. And that's why Jesus is going to need to conquer the grave for them so they can see. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, again, that shows you that Mary's not alone. It says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Do you see that in verse 33? He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And the reason I say that is I've got to develop these terms for a quick second. Please follow me on this. The term groaned is the term, and try this with me, embrim, try that, embrim, embrim almai. Now try to say it like this. Yeah, now you're like, is he really going to make us do that? The word literally comes from the term that means to snort in anger or in essence to look and see fault. It's a term that's used for blame. In other words, when Jesus is groaning here, it isn't like he's going, he is angry inside. There's a part of him that goes, oh man. That's what Jesus is feeling inside. And it says, and he was troubled. And the word there is the word tarasso, and it means to be agitated. Like water that groils to a boil. Or when you ever watch one of those washing machines when it starts to do this back and forth and everything's flopping around, that's what's going on inside Jesus. Jesus isn't just overcome with grief here. He's angry. Uh, who is he angry at? Is he angry at the enemy? Because he's the one who will bring about this death, in essence, the sin and all of that that would be brought into the world. Is he angry at the comforters who, <coughs> in all of this, have, in essence, with the enemy, encouraged Mary to stay in a place where she's angry at him? But Jesus looks and he says, where have you laid him? And the response, and notice it says, they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we read, Jesus wept. The cruel. The cruel is very different. There are several words that mean to cry. There are words to mean to openly wail, to beat your breast. The word the cruel simply means to shed tears. And I kind of get the idea here. Jesus is quiet, but the tears are streaming down his face. This isn't him openly crying like everybody else. But, I, but please understand, if you've been in one of those moments when you really are hurting, and there are people who just lo love to go on the ride with you and they just want to experience the, all of that. And they wail and they cry and all of that stuff. But you kind of know it's more for show. But then there's that person who you could just see in their eyes. They really actually are feeling your pain for a moment. It's a very different thing. And it doesn't have to be loud. And it doesn't have to be super demonstrative. It just has to be real. Does that make any sense at all? Because I get the idea here. Jesus wasn't trying to muster up tears. He was really hurting. Now, please understand. Up to this point, God's been the come and see guy. And for the first time, man's inviting God to see something. Have you thought that through? It was God who says in Isaiah chapter 55, lo or yo, I would say like yo, although I think it looks like ho in the version I see. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you with no money, 
come by and eat. Come, have wine and milk in abundance. He says, come, listen to me. Hear me. And delight yourself in the riches of fare. Incline your ear and turn to me that your soul may live. God says, taste and see that he's good. He's told us to come and see his works in Psalm 66, verse 5. And if you remember, this whole ministry started with two disciples looking at Jesus and saying, where are you staying? And his response was, come and see. John, of all people, would understand that because by the time he gets older and writes Revelation, assumedly within a couple of years of this, Jesus will look at Johnny one more time and say, Johnny, come up here and see this. And we see the revelation from that. Revelation, I remind you, means to be revealed, seeing things. Jesus has been up to this point going, come and see life, Johnny. Come and see beauty. Come and see things differently. Come and see that I'm so much different than sort of works first religion. But what's the one thing that man could invite God to see? Death. You see, because where God is, there's just not death. And imagine for the moment, it's like, let me invite you into my world. It's full of death. Right now, my life for the moment, it's all about this. And Jesus sees this thing, this grief. Have you ever been, seen something that was a genuine expose on something and it really just tore you up inside? Somebody reveals a little bit of who they are inside and what they've gone through and you just can't help it. And even if you kind of keep a stiff upper lip for the moment, you know sooner or later that dam's going to break and you're going to be a mess because of it. That's where Jesus is. And they're like, okay, come on, Jesus, you can see. Even though, I remind you, even though Jesus knows the end isn't death, he still cries here. If, if nothing else, if Jesus can... He understands that you can too. And if, even if it's someone that you love and they love the Lord and you know you'll see them for eternity because they've accepted the gift of Jesus, but for the moment what you're aware of is just the absence of that relationship, it's not absence of faith to, to shed a tear at a moment like that. Jesus, at least I say this, it's not a sin. You know what the Jews respond with? Remember those, and what are the Jews doing? As remember, he's giving that as the religious leaders. What are they doing at this moment? Professionally crying, I remind you. And yet they look at Jesus, and even the professional criers can recognize this is different than the show they're putting on. I'll see how he loved them. By the way, that word love there is the word phileo, by the way, because that's the word they understand. And some of them say, by the way, notice the accusation again. Couldn't this man who opened the eyes of the blind kept this guy from dying? And Jesus again groaning, remember that word? Groan himself, came to the tomb and a stone lay against it. A little bit of foreshadowing here. And he said, take away the stone. Martha seems to be the practical one of the two. Uh, and there always seems to be one that's a little bit more emotional and one that's a little bit more pay the bills. Uh, it's good to have both, by the way. Uh, and both have a great ministry. Martha kind of looks and goes, well, maybe you're missing the fact he's been rotting. He smells. Now, now, I don't know, I mean, I remind you, Martha was the one who got, went and got her sister. Jesus says, do you believe that he'll raise again? Hey, look, and I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm here now. I'm not just the resurrection, but also the life in this. And she's kind of looking, she's going, oh, yeah, I remember he said all that, but, but there's a practical aspect of this. He kind of really stinks. He's rotting. Death is so settled in for good in their minds that the effect is that they're rotting. And clearly it's evident to everyone who has any instance of science in their head. And Jesus said, now didn't I say to you that if you'd believe, you'd see the glory of God? If you'd really trust him, you'd see him for who he really is. Now, I don't know how many men it took to roll away this stone, and it doesn't tell us how big it is. But I know that sooner or later, Jesus is going to have this similar situation. But he'll have the help from an angel in that part. And understand, Jesus didn't roll away the, have the angel roll away the stone so he could get out. He'd be able to walk through walls after that. He rolled away the stone so we could get in and see he wasn't there. And by the way, at least nine different times in this text alone, we read the words dead, dying, 
because that's a real fundamental. We also read the focus on glory for, him, for his sake. And we say, so they took away the stone. They looked at the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he starts to pray. But notice his prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Not that you're hearing me right now, though he knows he is. In other words, Jesus in desperation has been crying out to the Father. And he knows that that prayer has been answered. That's been the whole part of this. And even though he knows the Father has answered the prayer and that Lazarus has come back to life, he still hurts here too. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are around me say this, I say this so that they would believe too. Jesus isn't just doing this for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. He's also doing it for those people who are professional criers. Isn't that everybody else around them at the moment? He goes, I want them to realize what, they could, be, what could be happening. So he says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Two words, by the way, just then. That was enough. And this is what we end with in our last couple verses. By the way, what did Lazarus do to, end, to earn Jesus raising him from the dead? Well, let's face it, when you're dead, the only thing you really can do is rot. And I don't think that really benefits much of anyone. And I want you to say that the, I want you to recognize that the Bible says before we come to Jesus and accept his gift, we are spiritually dead. We're spiritually rotting. And here's the good news. He's not asking you ever to earn anything. He's asking for you in trust to just receive his gift. I don't know how much simpler that could be. Because let's face it. So let's just say here I am. I'm, I'm taking Deborah and Hugo and Hugo's cousin to out to eat somewhere. And I want to pay the bill. This is hypothetical. This is no promise. And, uh, and as it's the case... See, now, the good news is Deborah and, and Hugo know me enough that they kind of know I'm not going to, like, later on charge interest and go, hey, that bill I paid before, you know. But his cousin doesn't know that. So he would have to trust a stranger that, or trust the people that know me well enough to go, is this a safe response or not? And might I say that's the same thing that happens out in that world. For the rest of the world out there, they may not know Jesus, but so they're going to look at those who do know him or claim to know him and see how will you respond and go, is this a safe bet or not? But in these last couple verses, might I say, as we end this, this is the entirety of our ministry wrapped up in a single event right here. So you know this is the vision of Shoreline Calvary Chapel, North London, the River Calvary. This is every bit of our ministry comes out of these three simple things. So please hear it. It starts with Jesus going to the grave, not because anyone is ever going to earn it, but there he simply calls him out. The first thing is to preach. He's just sharing. He is giving life. He is speaking life, and that life comes, and man, that guy comes out alive. That's where this starts. And when I say that if we stop preaching the gospel, the best we could be is a recyclery. In other words, we could try to find other Christians that are going to some other lame church somewhere and hope that we can make our church less lame so they come to ours. How lame is that? That would be like a hospital trying to fight with another hospital saying they have cooler beds. But he goes, Lazarus, come forth. It's a simple message. And out of the grave comes a man that God has made really clear has been dead. The one who was dead. The dead guy. Now he's not the dead guy anymore. He's even going to say one more time, the guy who was dead. So it starts with preaching. It's the gospel. Nothing else. The gospel is Jesus died for your sin and guilt, just like mine. Just like Scripture promised on the cross. He was buried on the third day. He rose again, just like Scripture promised. And then he was seen by a lot of people and he offers you that life. And that's the option. He's standing there going, I've paid the bill. Will you let me do so? And the rest is just giving him permission. Now it says in verse 44, and remember, this is our last verse. He who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Now don't miss this. Though Lazarus, I mean, on a, what percentage of, of alive is Lazarus at this moment? Is he 10% alive? Is he mostly alive? Or is he completely alive at this point? You tell me. Yeah, I kind of think this is an easy question. I I know you're kind of freaked out because you're afraid if I answer wrong, he's going to embarrass me. Well, I'd rather embarrass you with the truth. The truth is he's he's completely alive, but he doesn't totally look alive. Because he's still wrapped up. And he's still bound in the face. 
In other words, though his eyes may fully function, he's still wrapped up. He can't see through that grave clothes like he could. In other words, he can see a bit through it, but not like he could. So here he is, and understand, when they wrapped you up, it wasn't like they just kind of did this cool mummy thing, so it kind of comes on. They wrapped you up like a body cast. They took aloe if they had, if they had, because they could afford it. They wrapped you in, in, they basically swaddled you twice in life, when you came in and when you left. So imagine they kind of wrap you in these cloths, kind of like gauze bandage all the way around, and then they cover you in this, uh, you know, in like this aloe mixture. And four days is enough for that to harden enough. So you're kind of, he's kind of like this. He's kind of like one of those like really, really super tight Japanese skirts that you see some gals wear, right? That kind of hog ties them at the ankles and they kind of have to go like this. Well, that's kind of how he has to come out. So imagine, if you will, though Lazarus has come forth, don't miss this. Jesus could have said, Lazarus, come forth and leave your grave clothes behind. But why didn't he do that? Because Lazarus would have come out naked. And that would have been rough for a lot of people. So he's not doing that. So though he's completely 100% alive, he's still wrapped in his grave clothes. He still kind of smells, perhaps. Well, he may not, but the grave clothes probably still smell like death. And so he can't see as clearly as he could, and he can't move as clearly as he could, and his walk is still impaired, but he's 100% alive. And might I say to you, that's the second of our three things. We go from preaching to teaching. That's what I'm praying to do right now, is for those of you who have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, so you've already been called out of the grave, well then the next thing is to help unwrap your grave clothes. Because let's face it, when you said yes to Jesus, you still had a lot of things that looked like death that you did, if you're anything like me. The things you thought, the way you saw things, you know, the values that you kind of evaluated, they were still dead thoughts in a new living guy. And when I say, my encouragement is, let's unwrap those grave clothes. Let's let there be no hint of death left on us. So we go from preaching to teaching but notice the last statement. He who had died came out bound foot, hand and, so hand and foot with grave clothes. So that means he's kind of like this, hand and foot. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. We go preach, teach, and reach. You see, what are they going to let him go to do? To be a witness, to go call other people out of graves. To be a testimony that God calls people out of graves because they were there. As a matter of fact, next week what we'll be talking about is what do you do with a living Lazarus? Because he's going to cause quite a stir among all those people who are like, imagine a moment ago, you just got fired. I mean, the majority of the people that are there are professional criers. And what do they have to cry about now? They're like, ah, ha, ha. oh, now what do I do? I mean, imagine. And I actually, I know people that that's pretty much how they function. Anyways. <clears throat> and it's like for you, listen, you see, it's, this is what it means to be a Christian. First of all, we are in our, I mean, in spiritually we're in our tombs and Jesus says, come out. You have the, you have the opportunity, accept my gift of life because he is the resurrection and the life. If you accept the gift of Jesus and that's all you have to do is give him permission, he'll get you out of the tomb. But then once you do that, it's like, wow, let's get in his word and let's see what it's like to be discipled and to walk now. Let's learn what it's like to walk and to see these hands get off from being bound and being used to, to, to change lives and to get that nasty death stuff off of us so people could go, wow, you're not just like a mummy or a zombie. You're a totally living human being now. And then they go, now let him go, let him go, because it isn't that like we release him so that he becomes a slave to us. The whole idea is let them fall in love with the giver of life and then be used to change other people's lives. Isn't that what we want to do? The whole ministry is simple. Preach, teach, and reach. And I get it from this because it seems to make sense to me. Now here's my question as we go to prayer. Where are you at in that? Have you accepted the gift of Jesus? Are you still trying to live on mitzvah oath? You're still trying to figure out, maybe if I do, I'm a good person compared to someone who's not as good. So somehow that's going to be, is it, what's the sliding scale? Why would you want to try to pay your bill partially and assume it's going to be okay when in the end of it all, God already paid your bill? And he wants you to say yes. And if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus, you will have that opportunity today. Without embarrassment, in prayer, you have the opportunity to say yes to him. But if you have said yes to him, where are you at with your grave clothes? You're still basically trying to walk around like it's the zombie apocalypse? Where you're totally living, but you're so covered in death around you that people that are kind of dead spiritually around you kind of go, well, yeah, you're kind of like one of us. 
Because let's face it, when you're the only living thing in the morgue, you're actually really, really different. But maybe that's still beyond where you're at. Maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe you're like, you know what? I'm at the point now where I know these hands could be used. And I know where I'm at. That I know these. That I have a walk now. And I'm seeing things more clearly. Well, then let me ask, are you doing anything with it? You're like, well, what if I do it wrong? Let me say this. Doing nothing is definitely doing it wrong. And there's no place where Jesus is going to go, congratulations, you did nothing really well. Well done, good and faithful spectator. Just isn't in Scripture. You're like, well, what do I do? Why don't you start with this? Just be available and let God use you. Watch what happens. So as we go to prayer, on this, the last day of 2017, my challenge is, get out of the tomb, get those grave clothes off, and go and watch God change the world with you. Because 2018 is a year to get out of graves, and call other people out of graves, and unwrap other people's grave clothes. Because a lot of those grave clothes, to be honest, is just people who believe they just have to keep trying to earn what God wants to give. Imagine what would happen if we wrapped our head around that really about grace. Well, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this text. And I know we've tried to go through it slowly because it's so beautiful and deep and rich and yummy and tasty and so meaningful. And I pray right now, Lord, for those who are, in essence, bound up in grief. They've been through something or some things, and <clears throat> they may not understand, and, and they want to understand, but because they feel like they can't understand, somehow in all that they've allowed themselves to listen to the enemy that in essence turns us into accusers to you, God, as if somehow your end game was to cause grief and pain, like that was the end of it, instead of the fact that, Lord, everything is root to greater glory and understanding of who you are, that our relationship with you would intensify and it would deepen. So God, I pray for us right now, that you would lead us, Lord, to that place where we could start moving forward. Jesus, where we could leave behind earthly comforters that would keep us from you. And that we would be, and I'm not trying to belittle the grief and the pain, but God, I'm, I'm asking that we would seek you, the God of all comfort. And though we may have uh, set the idea and written the script in our head of how you're supposed to show up, when you're supposed to show up, and what you're supposed to do when you do show up, Yet, Lord, what's clear and obvious is that we so, we're so limited in our script writing compared to you because your end game is so much deeper and rich and right. And if we're really going to be honest, we know that. So I pray right now, Lord, that no matter where we're at in this, that you would actually speak to us by your Holy Spirit right now and show us our reasonable response to your motion, your initiative, not the other way around. So here in this room and at the sound of this voice, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus or you're not sure you have, Maybe you're trying to earn it. Maybe you think I just need to be really, really religious and do go to places that always just have stained glass and incense and so forth as if that would make you happy when what you really want is a relationship. The absence of death. What if, if death is not having a relationship with you, clearly life is having a relationship with you because you are the life. And without you, we can't have the life. So, right now, if there be anyone who wants to accept this gift, just pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I don't want to earn what you want to give. 
Because I can't. When Jesus died on that cross, He did it to pay my fee. And when He was buried, all my guilt was buried with Him. And when He rose again, all my guilt was left behind. To have this new life called out of my spiritual grave. So I say yes to you. If this is really what you're offering, I say yes. Begin my walk with you now. If you want to give me this, I would be crazy to say no. So I say yes. Take my life. Make it beautiful in you. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with this prayer, I simply ask for you to say, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer. Amen. And Lord, I pray for those who have come out of the grave spiritually, even as Lazarus did literally, that you... Get those grave clothes off of us. Don't let us get so accustomed to trying to do this grave clothes Christianity. But to let you unwrap the death that we had carried around with us this long so that we could see clearly, so that our hands could work rightly, so that our feet could have a right walk. And in that, Lord, I pray that you would grow us in that. For every person here, Lord, who knows that they have said yes to you as a gift, but somehow is still trying to live the death. Change that now, please. And for those who are growing and they see those grave clothes wrapped off of them and being continued to pull off of them, and yet in that, they don't recognize the need to 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 be available, to be, to be released and set out, to call others out of the grave and to be that testimony. Well, Lord, convict them and me too so that we could be out there reaching and in here reaching each other as we should. So, Lord, no matter where we're at, continue to lead us forward. Lord, you've come and seen our death. You've come and seen our grief. And now you challenge us to come and see your glory. And we say yes to follow you. Jesus, in your name we pray this. Amen. I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to be in the Word with you. I want to thank you for the honor of being your pastor. It's funky. We're in this little nursery where they have like weird things hanging on walls and caterpillars teaching us the alphabet and such. And it's, it's, and it's kind of weird and it's cool because it's, it's what we, I mean, you don't have to feel like you have to be normal to come, let's be honest. But I want to encourage you this week. Be available and watch what God does. And if you've prayed today, let someone you know and love, let them know it so they could be praying for you too. Let's do this. I'll grab a guitar and we'll just end with a song tonight. How's that? Uh, and let's do that. And uh, Deb, by the way, thank you for your service. Uh, at the and is it, I think it is Deb, yeah. Deb's still doing it. I don't know how that is. Okay. I'm going to grab my guitar. Oh, good. I have one other one here. Close enough. If it's too in tune, you guys would be scared to sing. Oh Lord, you rescued me, pulled my soul from the grave, and see me without pain. You turned my dead in heart.
to one that dances and sings. So here I am again. Breathe your life. Fill me now. Make me more like you. my soul from the grave and see me without blame you turn my dead in heart to one that dances and sings so here I am again breathe your life fill me now make me much that you've not asked us to earn anything. We're good at rotting. We're good at stinketh But you are great at saving. Thank you for calling us out of the tombs. Thank you for setting us free. May we walk and live lives that are proper response to that. And might we say, even early, Happy New Year, Lord. 2018 is yours. Jesus, in your name. Amen.